Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Charlotte Johann. And I'm Daniel Allemann. And today we're talking to Dr. Duncan Bell. Duncan is a reader in political thought and international relations at the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Christ's College. His research interests include the history of modern British and American ideologies of empire, the history of human sciences, and contemporary theories of global politics. Duncan, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. As usual on this podcast, I would like to start out with a question about your own intellectual biography. When and in what context did you first come to the study of intellectual history? It's a good question. Uh, I'm an accidental intellectual historian. So my undergraduate and master's degrees were in international relations, or more specifically war studies as an undergraduate in international relations as a master's. And I started writing my PhD on social theory and international relations. And I fell into intellectual history in the second year of my PhD, um, which I was spending at Columbia University in New York. I'd reached a dead end with my original project, and I'd started looking at uh, contemporary, this is late 1990s, debates about uh, liberal imperialism, and particularly about American empire. And I was interested in the historical background to this, so I began to explore 19th century debates about liberalism and empire, And it was in doing that that I came across the topic that I ended up writing my PhD on. Uh, and the rest of the story flows from that. But I haven't got any training in intellectual history. So although I've been based in Cambridge, I didn't do any of the undergraduate or graduate papers. And so I only really came to that quite late. You wrote your first book about intellectual themes of the 19th century. Now, the traditional strongholds of intellectual history, not only in Cambridge, Uh, the early modern period and the 20th century. So what got you interested in the 19th century? And do you think that there's something distinctive about the ways in which people think about politics in that period? That's a tricky question. Um, why the 19th century for me, it flows from my last answer. So I was interested in the way in which both critics of uh, political discourse, political practice in the 1990s, and also supporters of various uh, liberal internationalist projects look back to the 19th century as a source of ideas. And I was interested in exploring the continuities and changes between late Victorian ideas about international order and 1990s debates. And in the end, I gave that project up. It was too uh, broad, too ambitious, and perhaps rather misconceived. But I ended up sticking in the 19th century uh, because I found the debates there, particularly those about empire, to be absolutely fascinating. And... It's true that historians of political thought, um, not only in Cambridge but elsewhere, had tended not to spend a huge amount of time in the 19th century, except when looking at certain canonical figures, obviously John Stuart Mill, Karl Marx, Hegel and others. But the broader patterns of political discourse didn't seem to attract much attention uh, from intellectual historians. And that always struck me as rather puzzling, um, not least because this is the period in which Britain, especially at the end of the 19th century, is the most powerful state on earth and arguably rules the largest empire in human history. So I was fascinated by the kinds of political ideas which were animating um, people at the time, which were motivating political action, which were circulating within and throughout the British Empire. And I've ended up 
working on that over a number of years now. But again, in a way, I fell into it by accident, um, but it was a fortuitous landing. Insofar as the 19th century has anything especially distinctive about it in terms of political thought um, is, is an open question. I, I would focus on two issues, or I have focused on two issues in my own work. One is the role of technology in transforming the political imaginary, the way in which uh, a form of time-space compression is produced by new communications technologies throughout the um, particularly the second half of the century, which opens up new political vistas, new political opportunities, and generates a new set of fears uh, and anxieties about the future. That's then uh, intersecting with the development of democracy. So, of course, democratic ideas have been around for a fair while by then, but the actual practice of democracy, uh, albeit of a very limited and gendered kind, is principally a 19th century development. And moreover, the way in which democracy then infuses and informs political thinking is absolutely central. It transforms and shapes um, the political ideologies uh, that emerge and develop through through the century. So I've always been interested in the intersection between these broad political shifts like democracy and the role of empire with new technological developments and how this transforms thinking about the future. At the heart of your research is the relationship between liberalism and empire. But before we come to your own work, can you tell us a little bit about the contours of the academic debates about liberalism and empire in recent decades? Yeah, so the question of the relationship between liberalism and empire has been a fairly prominent feature of the history of political thought, political theory, for at least two decades now. I'd say it really explodes onto the scene in the 1990s, and I don't think that's any coincidence. It's to do with the purported New World Order after the end of the Cold War. Uh, it's to do with liberal interventionism, fears about liberal empire, and so on and so forth, uh, to do with the politics of uh, the Blair and Clinton years, amongst other things. There's then a series of important texts written on this. Um, Uday Singh Mehta's Liberalism and Empire from 1999 has been at the centre of debate, and there have been many others, Jennifer Pitts's work, Karuna Mantena's, Sankar Mutu's, and so on and so forth. So my work, in a sense, has been um, in that broad intellectual context, these scholars disagree quite profoundly about that relationship. Uh, some of them, and in particular Meta and some of his followers, want to see uh, a kind of near-constitutive relationship between liberalism and, and empire. I say near-constitutive because he holds back from saying that liberals must always be uh, imperialists, but he comes pretty close to making that argument. And then there's a response reaction to that by a group of other scholars, prominent ones I say would include Jennifer Pitts and A Turn to Empire, who want to suggest that there are strands of liberalism, certain phases of liberalism, certain kinds of liberalism, which are prone to imperialism, but that there are other kinds of liberalism, other phases, other trends, which provide powerful resources for anti-imperial critique. And so the spectrum is relatively broad. There are very few people today would argue that liberalism is necessarily antithetical to empire. Uh, if anyone ever believed that, that's now a dead view. Um, so the question is ultimately one that's both historical and contemporary, because the implications of these arguments obviously have very significant uh, repercussions for how we think about both present and future political life. Because if it's the case that liberalism conceptually, say, is always imperial, then that presents a very big problem for contemporary liberalism. Uh, whereas if the argument is that, yes, in the past certain liberals or certain strands of liberalism have been imperialist, but not all forms of liberalism are, then that gives us grounds for forms of liberalism today which are 
um, capable of being mobilized against the uh, demands of imperialism or domination abroad or however you want to see it. So although it was initially pitched, or at least it's sometimes been pitched as an historical argument, an argument amongst historians of political thought, the way I've read it is that it's always been both about the history of political thought and contemporary political theory and practice. In your recent book, Reordering the World, you argue that we should understand liberalism as an actor's category. And you call for moving beyond the established canon of the history of political thought. Could you tell us what you mean by this and uh, perhaps specify how this differs from other ways of understanding the history of liberalism? So the history of liberalism, at least in English language scholarship, but I think also elsewhere, is remarkably underdeveloped, not least given the dominance of liberalism in the contemporary or in recent, at least, uh, political thought and practice. There are very few monographs dedicated to the history of liberalism. It's remarkable. There are far more on the history of socialism, on the history of Marxism, fascism, communism, various other positions. And so that presents an interesting puzzle. Why is it that the history of arguably the ideology that won at least in the late 1990s is so poorly understood? Why do so few people study it in a systematic form? And I have various thoughts about that, but I was nevertheless interested in trying to make sense of how we could at least begin to write the history of liberalism. So I certainly don't claim to have done that. I actually think that it would be it would require a team project. I don't think any single scholar can give a comprehensive history of liberalism, given the multiple variety of forms that it's taken across different national and regional linguistic contexts. But I was interested in the methodological question of how we approach this. So typically, insofar as people have made historical claims about liberalism, they've either been based on the um, reading of canonical liberals, above all, John Locke, John Stuart Mill. So the idea is that you study the thought of these pivotal thinkers, and then you see maybe what they have in common, and you quickly generate an ideal type of liberalism, and then that's used to write the history of liberalism. That's a very common procedure amongst um, historians of political thought. I call it a canonical interpretative protocol. Another way of doing it, more common amongst philosophers, is to identify a conceptual architecture, a particular relationship between concepts of equality, liberty, domination, whatever it might be, and say that this is what liberalism is, so how can we then narrate a history of that liberalism? Historians themselves in political history, social history, have touched on this, but they don't really look at the history of the uh, ideas of uh, liberalism over time. And so we have a very peculiar and, in my view, distorting historiography of liberalism. And so I wanted to just try and make sense of it. On my view, at least, liberalism is not something that uh, is best seen as originating in early modern Europe, with John Locke as one of the founding figures. Uh, it's better seen as a 19th century um, post-French revolutionary ideology. It's certainly when the term begins to be used widely. The 1820s is really the period when liberalism comes to be seen as a relatively coherent political ideology. But it's even much later than that that it comes to be used as a standard category in political analysis. So I place a lot of emphasis in my writings in this on the 20th century and how the development of political theory as a subfield of an academic discipline helps to create and craft and forge what we understand today as the tradition of liberalism through the writing of textbooks, through the creation and stabilization of a canon, through pedagogy, Western civilization courses, and so on and so forth. What we find then is a retrojection of liberalism into the early modern period, 
the conscripting of John Locke as an arch-liberal, a broadly 20th century phenomenon, uh, and the deployment of this notion of liberalism in the ideological wars of the 20th century, in the clash against totalitarian fascisms and communisms. And so, although I never, I don't do any of this in great depth, this is the kind of story that I would want to tell about liberalism. And so that's what I mean by an actor's category. I'm not interested in, as it were, um, coming up with an ideal type of liberalism and then searching through the historical record for people that may or may not approximate it. I'm interested in it as it was used by political actors, by political agents in a form of self-understanding of what they were doing. And over time, those agents themselves construct a, a canon and a history uh, and an imaginary around it, which expands more and more across time and space. And liberalism, I guess my concluding point would be, becomes almost useless as a political category, largely because it wins these ideological wars to some extent. The fascists and the communists drop off, and liberalism swallows up much of what else is left. So most contemporary forms of socialism, I would say, can equally be redescribed as forms of radical liberalism. It's not clear where the boundaries of liberalism are. And so, at least in political theory for the last several decades, and in a lot of political practice in the West, the debate has been, broadly speaking, an intra-liberal one. And the liberal category becomes very unhelpful. We can add modifiers to it, social liberalisms, libertarian liberalisms, and so on and so forth. But as a general term, I think it's very unhelpful. And that's a problem because it's used as a general term in much social analysis in the different disciplines in which I'm interested, international relations, history, political theory. It's often wielded as a cudgel or uh, as something to be praised. And it's very often unclear what exactly is being talked about. One of your main goals is to include the discourse on settler colonialism into the history of liberalism and empire. In what ways does an acknowledgement of settler colonialism change the picture, and how can it, as you suggest, help decolonize liberalism? In the most prominent texts about liberalism and empire, empire is typically understood, or has been understood, as foreign occupation of uh, territories like India in particular, but also uh, parts of Africa. And that's obviously a key feature of the history of imperialism and a key feature of the history of liberal imperialism. After all, John Stuart Mill was a prominent figure in the East India Company and so on and so forth. That part of the story is now very well known uh, and, and the scholarship on it is very good. What was missing from a lot of this uh, scholarship, however, was a recognition that 19th century liberals, particularly in Britain, uh, were far more, often far more interested in settler colonialism than in India. Whereas liberals were divided on the question of uh, alien rule, as it was often called, there was very little disagreement on the benefits and the value of settler colonialism. So the settler colonies in the 19th century were spaces like what becomes called Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and of course the United States uh, prior to the revolutionary era was a British settler colony. There are many differences between the forms of imperial rule here, not least the racial dimension. So these polities were seen as uh, polities for populating with civilized white settlers. And they were also seen in terms of permanent settlements as opposed to spaces which could be improved and civilized up to the point where the civilizing mission was complete and the imperial power would withdraw, the kind of argument that John Stuart Mill and others made about India. And so my argument has been that uh, we ignore the settler colonial dimension of 19th century liberalism at our peril because we miss much of what animated liberal support for empire in the first place, and a particular set of concerns that liberals had with global order. Uh, and insofar as we miss that, we miss the opportunity to attempt the decolonizing process of contemporary liberal political theory, 
which many critical race theorists and others have been interested in. The problem is actually a very deep one. You might argue that it's more straightforward to decolonize a political theory which focuses on things like a civilizing mission view of um, alien spaces, as they were called, like India. The problem is with settler colonies that they are the foundations of the very states which came to be liberal today. The United States, Britain uh, as the settler colonial power, Australia, Canada. In other words, these are constitutive of the very polities which claim the liberal heritage. So what it might mean to then decolonize their dominant ideologies is very far from clear and is a profound problem, I think. And it strikes me as a, both an imperative and a very complex issue for political theorists and citizens to face up to. The political repercussions of the settler colonial order are played out to this very day in relations between indigenous populations and settler communities in these countries. These are issues that have not gone away. They're very live. Um, there's profound injustice in these societies. And so my aim in tracing some of the early history of these visions has been to slightly reorient the debate around liberalism and empire, not to ignore the other uh, dimension of it, because that was very important indeed, but to suggest that there was much more to the story and that we need to place settler colonialism at the heart of our histories of at least Anglo-American liberalism. So is this in part a question about forms of violence in that the means used by British colonizers in the civilizing mission are somewhat different from the means used by settler colonialists because arguably in order to civilize people you actually need to keep them alive whereas whole nations were exterminated in order to make settler colonialism possible. Um, well, all forms of empire are violent, and you find exterminatory up to genocidal forms of violence in different kinds of imperial orders. But settler colonialism is premised, uh, as Patrick Wolfe argued, on the elimination, uh, whether physical or cultural uh, or otherwise, of indigenous populations, not least through the claiming uh, of their territory as one's own. And so... There are profound differences in terms of the political economy of settler colonialism, in terms of the um, perceived racial dynamics of it, in terms of the purported longevity or permanence of the political communities, in terms of the memories of these kinds of polities uh, and these kinds of practices that we find in contemporary politics. Uh, I wouldn't want to suggest that there's a complete separation between the two. They often went hand in hand. But the justificatory arguments for the different kinds of empire in the 19th century were very different indeed. So to just give one example, John Seeley, uh, a very prominent late 19th century British imperial ideologue who I've written widely about, said that arguments for India and arguments for Greater Britain, as he called it, were completely different. One was about the future, one was about the past, one was about civilization, the other was about barbarism, and so on and so forth. And of course, he, like many others, were far more interested in and had far more investment in the idea of settler colonialism than they did in British uh, occupation of India. In your most recent work, you've turned to the intersection of utopianism and empire around the turn of the 20th century. You have a forthcoming piece on how the Scottish-American industrialist Andrew Carnegie fused notions of race, utopia and perpetual peace, and another forthcoming essay on H.G. Wells's pragmatic utopianism. Can you tell us a bit about these recent projects of yours and how they relate to your earlier work? Yes, yeah, so I've been trying to write for a while now a book which could be seen as the third volume in a very loose trilogy about 
settler colonial visions of political order. And the idea is to um, explore late 19th, early 20th century plans for reunifying uh, or reuniting the United States and Britain or the United States and the British settler empire. So it's the parallel story to the one I told in my first book, which was about the unification of the settler dimensions of the British Empire. They often went hand in hand. And so the cast of characters I look in that book includes Andrew Carnegie, Cecil Rhodes, H.G. Wells, uh, and a variety of other thinkers. The way in which I've come to think about it, although I didn't start thinking about this when I um, began working on it, is that we need to read the political discourse of the kind about the future of imperial and racial order as a form of utopianism. This was the era which saw um, a burst of utopian writing in both the United States and Britain, William Morris, Edward Bellamy, Wells and many others. And it strikes me now, and it struck some people at the time, that there were continuities between this kind of writing and the project of and the modes of thought found in people like Cecil Rhodes uh, and Carnegie. So it was a particular obsession with types of technology and the way that that could transform uh, world order a vision of perpetual peace through intentional human action. So I read these imperial projects as racialized forms of perpetual peace, which is what then makes them utopian. Wells, Rhodes, um, Carnegie and others thought that if you unified the Anglo-Saxon race, you could bring peace and justice to the earth, which is a very peculiar sounding argument from today's perspective, of course, but was quite a common one at the time. And it found many literary, fictional um, articulations as well. So one of the chapters in this book is actually about the origins of modern science fiction writing, in which this theme is very prominent. So I'm interested, in other words, in trying to break down the barriers between uh, conventional modes of political writing, the the ideas of political actors who aren't normally thought of as political thinkers, like Carnegie and and Rhodes, and also speculative uh, writing. Because it seems to me that, although there are, of course, differences, there are many similarities in the ideas that animate these actors and in their ideas. So that's the basic idea. The book uh, is provisionally called Dream Worlds of Race. The project on Wells grew out of that. So Wells is a key figure in that book because he was a prominent uh, proponent of the fusion of the English-speaking peoples, as he preferred to call it. But as I was working on the material uh, for that, I came across a very intriguing aspect of Wells's thought, which I don't think uh, had been given sufficient attention in the scholarship. And that's that Wells saw himself and was seen by many others at the time as a pragmatist, a philosophical pragmatist. This is a story that's missing from the history of pragmatism, and it's also missing from the vast bulk of the scholarship on Wells. And yet it was central to Wells' own intellectual identity, and William James, amongst others, regarded Wells as one of the leading pragmatist thinkers in the world. We forget today that Wells was one of the most widely read authors at the time, not just as a novelist, but as a social and political thinker. So I've spent the last uh, seven or eight months trying to work through some of the implications for this and trying to make sense of Wells' pragmatism, both what he meant by it, why people like William James and the British pragmatist philosopher F.C.S. Schiller, who's the leading European pragmatist at the time, regarded Wells as a pragmatist, and why this story has been forgotten. And the implication of this, I suggest, is that we need to reimagine Wells as a prominent uh, pragmatist, and that involves remapping the history of pragmatist political theory. Because if Wells was a pragmatist, that means that at the turn of the century, he was by far the most prominent pragmatist political thinker in the world. And so the two projects go together. Let's turn to contemporary politics. 
you have argued in the wake of the Brexit referendum that imperial ideology is still very much alive in British political discourse today uh, with the Anglosphere as a viable alternative to the European Union. And outside of Britain, uh, especially in continental uh, Europe, Brexit is often connected by public perception to the dream of reviving the British Empire. And yet dominant themes in the Leave campaign were about Britain's future at home rather than in the world, with dominant issues being immigration, national sovereignty, uh, welfare services, the NHS. So how do you square these two dimensions of Brexit, the global and the domestic? And um, is the imperial nostalgia that you talk about merely the concern of a small elite, uh, small intellectual elite, or is it a real factor in public opinion? The way I read it, it is primarily an elite phenomenon. So I'm not making any claims about um, public opinion as a whole. What I've been interested in uh, since I really started my work on this, but increasingly in recent years, is the way in which the echoes or the resonances of these late 19th and early 20th century arguments about Greater Britain, the English-speaking peoples, the settler world, have percolated through British political discourse in the 20th century, peaking in interest at particular moments in time and then disappearing into the wings again. And we're living through a period in which they have been foregrounded to some extent in aspects of elite discourse. So since the late 1990s, a strand of conservative Euroscepticism has sought an alternative to the European Union in a vision of a re-articulated Anglo world. So some kind of uh, association, whether formal or not, with the former settler colonies, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and above all, the United States. Sometimes this has been made very explicit, for example, in recent uh, proposals to create a formal quasi-federal structure called CANZUC, which would unite Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. At other times, in arguments for stressing free movement, not with European, continental European countries, but with Canada and Australia and New Zealand, a popular theme in Boris Johnson and Michael Gove's speeches over recent years. And so it strikes me that this has been an important theme in a certain strand of Brexit uh, advocacy, but I don't want to suggest that it's uh, enthused the wider public. Um, I'm agnostic on that question. I think there are many other concerns that have informed people's voting for, for Brexit. So I'm interested in the intellectual development there amongst not only politicians, but a small but influential group of elite thinkers, including historians like Andrew Roberts, to a certain extent, Neil Ferguson. Uh, so this I read in the longer history of settler colonial visions of world order. We have one final question. Besides your current work on utopianism and empire, you've also begun to explore the intersection between political theory and architecture, for instance, in the thought of the novelist J.G. Ballard. Could you give us a glimpse at some of the questions this line of research of yours investigates? Yeah, so Ballard uh, is a long-standing interest of mine. Um, I began trying to write on him in the late 1990s and then put it aside because I wasn't happy at all with what I managed to produce. And I've returned to it recently. And so I put together an article on uh, Ballard as a thinker about infrastructure and architecture. I plan to write some more on Ballard's political thinking because he strikes me as one of the most interesting uh, diagnosticians of modernity, uh, certainly of recent decades. But that's part of a wider research interest in the way in which 
non-traditional forms of political writing, and in particular that art can be uh, read as political uh, texts, as political statements. And so I'm particularly interested in certain forms of literature, above all utopian and dystopian literature, certain forms of the visual arts, and also architecture. It's, of course, no surprise that um, architects, novelists, um, writers of various kinds have been motivated by uh, political projects in their writings. But historians of political thought have tended not to pay much attention to this. Uh, there are, of course, exceptions, perhaps most notably from my perspective, Quentin Skinner's work on Italian fresco painting. But what I'm interested in doing is expanding out um, the range of texts that we take as being um, worthy of study by historians of political thought. There are, of course, large literatures on these subjects amongst art historians, amongst historians of, of literature and so on and so forth. But I'm interested in trying to integrate this into the way in which we think about the history of political thinking. And of course, here you can see the continuities with the book project I'm doing at the moment, looking at the origins of science fiction writing, uh, a new course I'm teaching in Cambridge at the moment on reading utopian literature as, as a form of political thought and so on and so forth. So I certainly don't claim to be the only person that's done this. I've been influenced by scholars like Greg Clays and Lyman Tower Sargent, looking at utopianism, as I said, by, by Quentin Skinner's work on Italian fresco painting and various other things. But it struck me that there's an awful lot that remains to be said about this. And architecture is just a particular uh, interest of mine. Um, it's also the hardest to uh, actually ground in terms of thinking about political theory for, for various reasons. Uh, and so we'll see where that goes. Um, I'm currently editing a, a volume with uh, Bernardo Zacca that tries to explore some of the intersections between political theory and architecture. I may well write some more about it in the future, I, I'm not sure. Uh, but it's certainly something that I think is a wide open field of study for uh, intellectual historians and above all historians of, of political thought. And I hope that more work is done on this in the future. Whether it's by me or not remains to be seen. That's a great way to end the conversation. We thank you very much for being here, Duncan, and to everyone who's tuned in for this podcast. We'll be back soon with yet another episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. <laughs>